Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Sazan. On October 1st, Iraqis took to the streets in Baghdad and marched to Tahrir Square to mark the second anniversary of the massive protest movement, which began in October 2019 and were met with violence and repression from state security forces and militias backed by the Iranian regime. According to Iraqi High Commission for Human Rights, almost 600 demonstrators were killed and more than 30,000 people were injured. Tishreen, which refers to October in Arabic, is the name that was given to this historic uprising that lasted several months and dwindled after a bloody crackdown and the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Shahram Aghamir spoke with Nabil Saleh, an Iraqi writer, journalist, and photographer about the October 1st protest, which happened just nine days before Iraq's parliamentary elections. What happened in October 2019 will live on the collective memory of genuine Iraqis for ages. In fact, it is the most glorious event that I was privileged and honored to witness and take part of. Why do people march in commemoration of the October uprising? Well, it is out of respect to those who fell and shed blood for an Iraq they never had. It is a matter of respect and a reminder that their sacrifices, at least to those who remember them, will not go in vain. I would say it is also a reminder to us that regardless of the boots treading heavily on the necks of those downtrodden youth who march on the streets of Iraq and Baghdad and under Jawad Salim's Freedom Monument in Al-Tahrir Square and elsewhere, that these people will still try to voice their opinions regardless of the misery they are sinking in as they fall from one abyss to the next under the rule of these degenerates who assumed power thanks to the barbaric invasion that was led by the United States of America and Britain because credit where credit is due. And we shall not forget anyone who played a role in the destruction of Iraq. But it's also sad to see these people marching on the streets because I may sound pessimist, but it will take long, long and many years until these people will see the change that they dream of and walk to death in their attempts to see materialize. So this month's elections in Iraq, which is seen as a response by a benevolent regime who, that listens to the demands of the masses, is actually intended to make this regime that has lost all legitimacy in the eyes of those who still complain, who still resist in any means possible to them. So the elections of this October, which is seen as a response by a benevolent regime to the demands of the masses, is actually, it has more to do with making this regime that has lost all legitimacy in the eyes of millions of Iraqis look good than it has to do with meeting the demands of the people. Because for instance, among the many demands that were conveyed in the banners and the placards and 
that were the slogans that were, that were chanted and hoisted on Al-Tahrir Square and elsewhere and protest squares in Iraq were not just about elections, were about accountability, were about ousting these crooks who are also winning this time around and will take part in the next government, which in my opinion will be no different, mostly than the ones we had, because since the invasion and occupation of Iraq, every government has either killed or enabled the plentiful death of Iraqis through its miserable and lethal failure. And that's why you see uh, the turnout is is in 43%, perhaps, because so many Iraqis don't bother going to cast their votes because uh, they know little uh, will change. And now you have uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, whose followers during the October uprising stabbed protesters, shot at protesters. And if you go back in time, in what social colleges, in what Western media calls or describes as civil war, his followers actually played a role in displacing, terrorizing, killing, abducting Iraqis. Now, this man has over 70 seats out of 300 and 29, I think, in the parliament. Of course, you have the, the militias in the previous elections. They had seats in the 40s. Now they have 15 or 14, which is seen as a good sign. But again, you have Nouril Maliki, the former prime minister, under whose leadership a third of Iraq's territory fell to ISIS, as well as the crackdown episodes targeting so many protests throughout the country. This man also has parliament seats in the, in somewhere in the 30s and the parliament speaker Mohammed al-Halbusi in the 40s. So basically the same Shipton democracy knights will rule for the next four years. They will, of course, form alliances and there is a sense of camaraderie that was built during the years of theft and neglect and oppression that followed the invasion of 2003. And these guys are buddies and will do things the way that they did in the past years. Of course, you have some new faces. For example, Emtidad, there is new movement formed by politicians. They won around 10 seats in the parliament. And while this looks like a good sign as well, one needs to think and remember you have militias that have killed and abducted activists, scholars, you name it, at one and no one was held accountable. So imagine what would it be for these new politicians whose blocks don't have a military wing or an armed wing? Uh, what will they face when they oppose the hegemony of these armed factions, for example, or Sadr himself? So the future is bleak, and the next four years will see more blood, more death, and more misery. This question is not unique to Iraq in some ways. There are different countries with different political structures that are facing similar challenges, some of them being more authoritarian, some of them less. But the question is this. Among the protesters, the anti-establishment activists, some of these activists supported this new law, election law. They thought they could use it to weaken the ruling parties and reduce the influence of traditional party leaders. But other activists argued that the election was not about reforming the system, but rather about re-legitimizing the existing power structure, as you mentioned. And you correctly identified what I call a class solidarity among the ruling bloc. Can you elaborate on this division among the anti-establishment activists? Some of them have gained seats within the parliament. 
Well, I spoke to uh, to a protester who lost his right leg on Jisr al-Jumhuriya, which is the bridge of the Republic over the Tigris River, where the state's gunmen slaughtered so many unarmed civilians in what our clueless foreign journalists' colleagues uh, describe as clashes. And he said he voted for, for Imtidad and... And this is his, a, and this yes. activist, yes. Yeah, mostly in, in southern Iraq. We were speaking about the less seats won by Fatah, which incorporates the uh, militias under al-Hashd al-Shabi, which is uh, the militias that were formed to fight ISIS and were incorporated in the uh, official security forces. And he said that they broke their backs. That was his reaction when I spoke with him after the results came out. It depends. The problem with the October uprising is that there was so much death and so much repression. It left so many activists, protesters, disillusioned, disappointed, and feeling helpless and losing hope. It is natural to hear people boycotting the elections. I don't know any, personally, my family in Iraq, I don't know of anyone who went to vote for anyone in, in these elections. And this was the case, by the way, since 2003, because no matter the votes, the same crooks will rule all over again. They all form alliances, and basically the status quo will remain untouched. Now, what these people who, who did vote was, they basically saw the elections as an opportunity to continue the struggle, which is, I respect that. But at the same time, like I said, it will be a long, long way until you, you sense concrete change in the lives of ordinary civilians. When they began in October 2019, a Tashreen protest initially focused on poor public services, high unemployment, and complaints of corruption in state institutions. But the repression against demonstrators actually raised the ceiling of demands. Can you talk about the origins of these demands and how they evolved? Well, I think it is wrong from the beginning to portray the October uprising as merely a series of protests demanding better living conditions, employment, or improvement in the provision of public services. No, these people have been humiliated, marginalized, neglected, treated on by the ruling elites since 2003. So the sense of anger has been accumulating for two decades now. And this was a natural response to this humiliation. These people don't exist to the state. You have militiamen and the relatives of the politicians, those who occupy the confiscated green zone on the Tigris River. They have jobs, they ride SUVs, and they dine in the finest restaurants on the Tigris River. While these people, college graduates, sell unchewable chewing gum on the streets beneath portraits of dead youth fallen and the many battles to fix the lethal failure of the state itself, as what happened with the fall of Mosul, for example, and the rest of Iraqi cities to ISIS. So it is more of a reaction, spontaneous answer to injustice than demanding better living conditions. But of course, the misery that engulfs Iraqis in their everyday life, if I can call it as such, because I doubt that there's a life in Iraq, played a key role in the anger that, that simmered over the years, and they were among the many demands. But the way I saw it, and the faces of the people that I met and protested with and interviewed 
was an attempt to assert an identity, an existence that is rather stripped from them by the states that dictates how they live, how they breathe, what is the degree of the cleanness of the water that they drink, etc. Do you think the way the state security forces and the militia who are in alliance with them responded to the protest, radicalized the demands? Well, Al-Shabi reads Qatar people wants to bring the regime down, has been ringing out in protest squares in Iraq since 2011. And people voice this anger in their everyday life. For example, when they are caught in Baghdad's endless traffic jams, when they go to do some paperwork in government offices, when they deal with checkpoints that are still inundate the streets of Iraq. So yes, what the repression and the brutal crackdown on the protest did was inciting a faza, which is a collective aid to those who were standing on protest squares. So what happened is those people who not only saw what happened on social media, but who heard from their neighbors and their friends who returned to their impoverished alleys, soaked in blood, suffocating from tear gas, decided to join the protest the day after. Two years have gone by since Tishreen protests began in Iraq. Have we been able to assess the makeup of the protesters? Do we know which classes and social groups were participating in the rallies, marches, and different forms of direct actions and civil disobedience. Well, in October 2019, I wrote a piece for Jadaliyya titled Tifadat al-Fuqara'a fi Balad al-Shuhada, the uprising of the poor and the land of martyrs. The people who I have seen on the streets of Baghdad, starting from the 2nd of October, the day I started covering the protests from the streets that were surrounding Al-Tahrir Square, were mostly poor, those porters and marginalized youth who are usually non-existent in their everyday life. They became leaders at the forefronts of the protests, and they came mostly from central Baghdad, which is once a gorgeous web of beautiful houses, now a labyrinth of notoriously dark, gloomy, and deserted alleys. And you have people from eastern Baghdad who rose and who protested even before Muqtad al-Sadr, where his support base is mostly in eastern Baghdad. Even before he endorsed the protest, those from eastern Baghdad joined the demonstrations. But there were also people from the middle class. You have artists, film directors, you had writers, intellectuals, so many people from every segment of the society marched together and decried the divisions that were fabricated by the Shipton crooks who ruled after 2003 and asserted the unity of the people of Iraq against these divisions and demanded a homeland. That was the main chant, the main slogan. We want a homeland because it was stolen and destroyed and the people in Iraq are actually living among its ruins. And this issue of homeland was very promising because it's a slogan against Iraq's current confessional sectarian political structure, is it not? Yes, by chanting, we want a homeland, these protesters voiced the need of an Iraq that they never had, and an Iraq where 
they and their families and friends could live in safety and security and without having to submit to humiliation and injustices that are only increasing since 2003. This anti-establishment protest seemed to have started spontaneously with none of the traditional political parties playing a notable role in them. One should also be mindful of decades of authoritarian rule, war and sanctions that have surely taken their toll on the civil society and civil activism in Iraq. What can you tell us about the lessons that Iraqi activists may have learned about the issues of leadership, organization, tactics, and the methods through which the grassroots activists mobilize, given the challenges facing such a mobilization on the the existing political structure in Iraq? Well, it is important to remember that so many people on the streets during the uprising, whether it's in Baghdad or elsewhere, were again the marginalized and the poor who used to echo out a living and miserable conditions in central Baghdad and elsewhere in impoverished alleys in the Iraqi capital. To some extent, the protest was leaderless. There were calls on social media urging people to take to the streets, to join the demonstrations. True, there were so many people who played a key role and taken to social media to do this uh, via pages, for example, on, on Facebook that had large follower base. But to which extent the trajectory of the uprising reflected what these activists uh, wanted, that remains unknown, because I remember meeting with activists on Al-Tahrir Square even months when the sit-in remained. They used to have meetings, and like 50 people gather in tents, and they simply didn't agree on so many decisions regarding the next step uh, and how to respond to the government response to uh, the uprising. And there were people who just demonstrated and marched regardless of who was planning what. To a large extent, it was a spontaneous movement, though it was, let's say, the events that preceded it, which, for example, the removal of kiosks and from the streets and the humiliation of unemployed scholars on the streets of Baghdad by security forces. Mm. There were videos going viral on social media. Of course, they played a role in agitating the masses. But every individual took it personally. He doesn't exist to the state. The state laughs at him. Each of them became a leader. Each of them wanted to vent out dormant anger at those who render his existence miserable and steal on his money, his future, and leave in him in limbo. I notice, Nabil, that some of the um, tactics used by the protesters was very promising in terms of blocking the roads to uh, critical facilities, for instance, ports and so forth and so on. They realized that it's not enough to march and rally. The irony, you know, is that the government then thought that they were doing a good job, Yanni. The politicians, for example, I remember Adil Abdel Mahdi, then prime minister who is who still appears not only publicly, but also in pictures on social media with scholars who see it absolutely normal to pose with a grin next to someone who, if not ordered, then failed miserably in, in preventing the death of near 1,000 young boy and girl. And of course, the injuries were in the tens of, of thousands. I spoke with uh, 
with a minister from his administration, and I'll not bring his name in this interview. And we mentioned the uprising, and he told me that the protest ruined everything. Adil Abdel Mahdi at the time said something like, Aina qassarna or Aina akhtaana, which is, where did we make a mistake? To them, the bar for success is so low that the misery of today's Iraq, and for example, the small things that they do, for example, the removal of some concrete blocks from, from one street to the next, these are achievements. This should give you an example of whose role in today's Iraq. The prime minister was forced to stand down as a result of this protest. One last thing about the elections. Ironically, the United Nations, prior to the elections, posted pictures on, on their social media pages of graffiti painted on concrete blocks, urging people, Iraqis, to go and cast their votes. But these concrete blocks, there is moral decadence in here. These concrete blocks not only stand as a reminder of the lethal failure of the crooks who rule and enable or necessitate their presence, but they are also stand as a reminder to the Iraqis who wake up to them every morning of a persistent trauma that still haunts them in their everyday life. And these concrete barriers as well signify divisions and securitization of public spaces. But the United Nations had, of course, so that it is all right to completely normal to post these pictures, which, uh, which brings me to mentioning how Western diplomats, for example, and of course, some scholars and researchers who work as advisors for the government try to depict the Iraqi state as if it is making progress and moving forward. And if you read what Paul Bremer wrote for WSG a couple of weeks ago, you would have the impression that Iraq is a prospering. And this normalization is malicious. It basically gives you the idea that it's not that bad in Iraq, which is wrong. If you go and check Iraq body count, over 500 people, including 40 child, have died since the start of the year, and the year hasn't ended yet. If you follow the news, we are still constantly on the news, at least not in the United States, because this country suffers from uh, amnesia. Same goes for Britain. But at least in, in local media, you see people committing suicide because of the misery engulfing them. You see an IED blowing, going off somewhere, killing soldiers. Not just that. If you walk on the streets of Baghdad, you see the funeral banners that are still hanged on the walls. You see the, the people who die and died in terrorist attacks. Actually, back to the diplomats, many of the embassies in Baghdad still have concrete barriers erected around them. But if you follow their social media accounts, you get the impression that the contrary is happening. Like it's, uh, it's all normal in Iraq. In your writing, you refer to a legendary Iraqi poet, Saadi Yusuf, and mm -hmm. what you call his prophetic poem, A Vision. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he departed our world just a few months ago. And this poem, A Vision, he says... This Iraq will reach the ends of the graveyard. It will bury its sons in open country, generation after generation, and it will forgive its despot. It will not be the Iraq that once held the name. The larks will not sing. You add, more than two decades have passed since Sadi Yusuf wrote these lines in 1997, and Iraq still buries its sons 
generation after generation. Actually, Muhammad Mahdi al-Jawahiri, the greatest Arabian poet, wrote something decades ago, actually in the late 40s, when his brother died in one of these protests against another corrupt regime at the time. And it was translated by Sinan Antun. It says, okay. I see a horizon lit with blood and many a starless nights. A generation comes, another goes, and the fire keeps burning. And indeed, the fire still burns in Iraq. You're right. It's painful to be Iraqi. Even the streets of memory are littered with the bodies of our dead. This is such a powerful metaphor. Do you want to say something about it? The walls of my memory are trembling and are riddled with bullet holes and shrapnel and are smeared with blood. And this blood will not go away. If you read the history of Iraq, your fingertips will literally be soaked in blood because there are so much pain and injustice in the past two decades alone. What pains me is that it doesn't get enough attention. For example, when I arrived in Washington, D.C., where I live and study currently and feel as an absolute stranger, a piece written by Sinan Antun many, many years ago titled A Barbarian in Rome was always on my mind, and I encountered similar sentiments. Yes, like the ones he uh, masterfully describes in, in this piece. And it tells me a lot about the amnesia, about how us Iraqis are now placed in a corner of oblivion beyond dehumanization. For example, I was in a pub watching my favorite football, I'll not call it soccer, team, and someone who knew that I was from Iraq came to introduce himself. And he said, are you from Iraq? I told him, yes, I am. He said, I have never met anyone from Iraq before. My brother was there in Fallujah. He used to order the airstrikes in, in both battles. And how normal he said it, or he thought that it's normal to approach an Iraqi in the way he did, tells me a lot about how the media, the education system, for example, are all complicit and basically not holding anyone accountable, not even acknowledging the harm that was inflicted on us Iraqis who are better remain in the rear view mirror along with the dead bodies of the empire's adventures. And uh, yes, it is painful to be Iraqi. There is no escaping from this fact. That's Nabil Saleh, an independent journalist and photographer, speaking with Shahram Agamir about the recent protest in Iraqi capital Baghdad in commemoration of the second anniversary of the start of the unprecedented popular protests in 2019. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. protesters. These are from the subaltern classes, the poor. In addition to high unemployment rates, Iraq has been experiencing a deepening poverty crisis. We can talk about figures and statistics, but beyond figures, how does the poverty and unemployment manifest itself in Iraq? Uh, You give us a moving and painful narrative when you write about what you witness 
during your um, car trips and long walks through different neighborhoods of Baghdad. You refer to them as Baghdad Walk Series, if I'm not mistaken. They started in May 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm not concerned in statistics figures because uh, it is uh, known that it is difficult to gauge poverty, for example, in Iraq. Even in, during the genocidal sanctions that were imposed by the United Nations, and of course, no one was held accountable for, for killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children and starving them to death. Even then, I didn't see as many poor as I used to see in the past years before I left Iraq. You have widows wailing on the streets, beating their faces, zigzagging between traffic. And children. Children as well, tugging along, holding on to their mother's tattered abayas, the black dresses, selling unchewable chewing gum, bottled drinking water that no one buys. And they are miserable and mismatched flip-flops. Some of them are cry on the streets, squabble with each other or sit, muted, looking down. I remember one of one specific child I met on Abu Nawaz Street. He didn't even know how old he was. He told me seven, maybe nine. And across the river from him lived the politicians who enable his permanent poverty. So this is Iraq. By the way, it's not only limited to those who don't finish their education or are born to, to poor families. You have college graduates selling tissues, packs of tissues on the streets. So imagine the limits of misery that is uh, cornering Iraqis. You actually give us another example to show how detached the state is from the masses, as you call them. You say um, piling on the agony, the state challenges the desperate youth instead of presenting answers to their ordeals. A recent statement from the Ministry of Interior said 650 beggars were arrested in Baghdad in a campaign to eliminate quote-unquote bad phenomena. You say this utopian jargon of state rhetoric implies that there is no reason for its citizens to beg. Yeah, it is, it is similar to, to the conversation that I had with the minister that I told you about, similar to the speech of former Prime Minister Adil Abdel Mahdi, who wondered what went wrong in one of his speeches to the people he will not ever represent. I mean, Badr Shakir Sayyab, another legendary poet, and it's again translated by Sinan Antun, mm-hmm. is that every year when earth turned green, the hunger struck us. Not a year has passed without hunger in Iraq. And what the state does in its rosy statements imply that it is normal in Iraq, that indeed these people have no reason to wander the streets and beg. But if you follow local news, many of these youth jump from the highest bridges in towns you will never hear of because Western media doesn't bother sending a correspondent to these areas, hanging themselves in living rooms in towns that, despite being bombed in previous wars, again, you do not see on Western TV screens. In your piece entitled Baghdad, a solitary walk through a crime scene, you refer to mm-hmm. poverty, fear, and securitization that reign over Baghdad. Uh, you write, but poverty was not the only palpable presence in the street. Politicians endlessly pledging to enforce the rule of law in mm-hmm. a lawless land. 
although the Iraqi government is unable to guarantee the safety of its citizens, it nevertheless insists on securitizing their public space. Explain to us what you mean by securitizing the public space, because earlier in our conversation, you also referred to it. Well, actually, if you walk down the streets of Iraq, you still see soldiers with guns on the sidewalks or in checkpoints severing the streets of Iraq and checking people's IDs or just loitering around. And of course, it makes you wonder why are these security breaches are still allowed to happen when billions of each year's budget goes to fund the security apparatus. Now, back to the peace I wrote. I was actually stopped by security forces uh, three times, I think, within 45 minutes, just on Abunoa Street, just for hanging a camera from my neck. I wasn't even taking photos. So the state dictates how you walk. You are not free in Iraq. There is a lot of talk about dictatorship. Come see what, is, what it feels like living in today's Iraq. And in fact, an hour later, I was taking a photo to a vendor with his tool after asking his permission. And his stall was outside a liquor store. And a member of the security forces, a soldier from the army, in fact, grabbed me from my arm, took my camera and walked me aside and started interrogating me for like 15 minutes, asking me to show him every photo that I took that night. Why? Because liquor stores were threatened by a few gangs that called themselves uh, Rab Allah or Allah's followers or Allah's companions. And the funny thing is that these militias roam the streets with their weapons and no one dares to say a word. But when an ordinary citizen like myself tries to just walk, to do what he loves to do, just taking pictures, then you are, of course, it is a problem to the security forces, but the parades are not a problem. Since you talk about the militias, what happened after this so-called integration of the militia into the uh, regular military? or the armed forces of Iraq. What actually took place and what are the implications of it? Well, they became represented in the parliament and they had around 45 seats in the previous parliament. And of course, most of them are a bunch of outlaws, but now you have outlaws functioning within a government. But it is important to remember that corruption and lawlessness is not only limited to those people with guns and their representatives in the parliament. But those men in fine suits who speak in a way Western media likes, these people are no better. They still, I spoke about the sense of uh, this camaraderie between them. You know, both of them stole, both of them robbed, both of them failed miserably in doing their jobs. You're right. Those dissatisfied with living on crumbs and who stray from the herd are mowed down in broad daylight executed by, you put this in quotation, quote-unquote, unknown gunmen under the gaze of CCTV cameras at their doorsteps. You say this thuggery makes me think twice before writing a single word on Iraq. Can you talk about this campaign of abduction and killing? By the way, it's not just the militias. It's the state itself. I remember all too well during the first days of the October uprising, me and my colleagues were worried about lists of journalists who cover the protest 
and will be targeted by security forces. There were at least rumors, so there was at least an air of fear at the time, which is akin to that felt by our colleagues under the dictatorship. To be honest, I still don't feel secure speaking about the things that I'm saying today. These people are dangerous and will do harm to anyone they could reach. But again, it's not easy to publish for, uh, for someone like me. People like myself who write from their perspective, who lived most of their life in Iraq, are rather muted so that the tourist journalists are unchallenged and presenting their divisive reporting that is often detached from reality and boring and recycled. Or we exist as vulnerable beings that are quoted briefly by scholars and researchers and journalists abroad. Yeah, it was not easy. It's still not easy for me to get my words published. You're very clear about that. You are critical of the international media when you write, Iraq, after all, is a dream destination for many Western opportunists drooling over the prospects of the next opening in the global south. Not only are we inferior humans unable to travel and work in their countries as easily, but we are unable to find equal opportunities in our own lands too. And they build their careers not only on our suffering, but also on our insights, tips, and uh, stories, basically. I had uh, funny characters work in Iraq, and uh, I had some conversations with them. And many of these conversations were the first and the last I had with many of them. The yes. thing is that you don't exist. You are canceled. If you criticize their work, then, for example, on social media, where they slide in your direct messages to apologize for their miserable reporting, they don't share your work, for example, publicly. And whatever they, they write, they promote each other's work. And senior positions, whether it's aid or journalism in Iraq, and I'm sure it's else, the same applies elsewhere in the global south, are reserved for people who come from the outside, the experts. As for us, we are sucked for information and discarded. And in fact, I'm not just saying this because I didn't get a job, for example, or anything. If you read their work, there is a lot of problems in their wording. For example, their insistence on the divisive narrative. For example, this is a Sunni province. This is a Shia province. Sunnis and Shia Muslims killed themselves during the civil war. And here... I argue that it was not the case as described in these recycled reports. Because, for example, I come from a family that suffered under dictatorship. My uncle was actually a communist who was executed by the Baathist regime. My father was kidnapped by a militia that claims to protect and support the Shias. My uncle, my late uncle, was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda. So imagine, it's the same family. And then where later we were displaced by a militia that claims to protect and support Sunnis. So where is civil war here? Did my father or my neighbors or my friends' families carry guns and shoot at each other? No. I remember all too well uh, on night I was listening to the radio. I had a radio that ran on batteries because the power, thanks to the United States of America, rarely shows up in our houses that were bombed in the invasion. I had cluster bomblets fallen on the garden where some of the sweetest memories of my childhood 
were created. I was listening to the radio and a girl from my neighborhood calls to speak on a talk show and she started crying and complaining how she cannot walk outside because of the presence and the role of this particular militia in our neighborhood, how she had to wear a scarf. So even the people, for example, Sunnis living in a neighborhood controlled by a so-called Sunni militia, they did not cling to these gunmen for protection or, or whatnot. No, they were living in fear, actually. So there are so many details that need to be properly addressed to avoid this generalization and even the language they use, for instance, using the terms such as clashes between the protesters and state security or militia, in that sense, it's not even unique to Iraq. As an Iranian, I have been reading similar nightmarish writings. No, they are good at it, folks in the West. But clashes, I mean, you know, I always wondered whenever I read one of uh, my foreign colleagues using the term, what machine guns did you see at the disposal of these protesters? Because I didn't see any. Or even a pistol. Some of them did throw Molotov cocktails that mostly fell meters away from the security forces. But don't tell me that there is an equivalency of power in this standoff. Because by doing this, you are supporting the official state story, which depicts these protesters who are mostly peaceful, unarmed, as saboteurs, then greenlighting their extermination. Precisely. Well said. Nabil, it's remarkable that after so many years, Baghdad, the capital, looks like a war zone. In one of your writings, you are depicting Baghdad as a war zone. Can you read that to us? Yeah, this was in, in, in a piece I wrote for Al Jazeera, and in which I say 18 years have passed, and yet Baghdad still feels like it is amidst of, of a war. Military helicopters still roar over impoverished alleys where youth are doomed to a miserable existence, to go out looking for work, only to return home in a coffin, to have their portraits adorn living rooms where old women sit in silence, drowned in unassuaged grief. And you express your anguish when you write, what today's Iraq has to offer stabs me in the eyes, leaving me muted. It does, because, for example, when I wake up to the sound of a military helicopter going to, you know, whether it's American or, or one belongs to the Iraqi military, and then wake up and see a cobweb of wires in front of my house feeding different apartments and rooms with electricity from generators that roar long into the night and see concrete blocks, see soldiers on the streets, bullet holes still decorating the facades of homes that no longer have gardens. It does, it does stab me in the eyes. You have the road signs are still riddled with shrapnel from 2003. You have... uh, footbridges that are amputated also from 2003. There is a, a hole in one of the pillars of a certain bridge near where I lived, still have the marks of an RPG, if I'm not mistaken. So many tanks of the occupation army burned there. And then you, you go and see the news and see how many people died this year from Iraq body count. Isn't this a state of war? And how do you reconcile that with the uh, G.W. Bush's statement in May of 2003 that the war in Iraq is over? 
Thank you for mentioning George Bush. His crimes are, are known and uh, unfortunately, like Colin Powell, deceased, like Donald Rumsfeld, deceased. He will not face justice before going to the dungeons of hell. But I want to mention how media in the United States actually have absolutely no problem in having him appear on talk shows. For example, he appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live, smiling, speaking about his book of portraits. And then he appeared with the CBS's Nora O'Donnell. There is an ethical question here. And then I, I link this to what this guy told me in a pub. Uh, are you from Iraq? I told him, yes. He said, my brother was there in Fallujah ordering the airstrikes in both battles. Why did he say that? Because he sees war criminal like George W. Bush on his TV screen, smiling like a peaceful pacifist who didn't even harm a cat in his lifetime. There is a moral decadence in media, and it's a big question mark on the sloths who populate newsrooms in the United States. As you mentioned, Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State during George Bush administration, died a few days ago. He delivered the famous speech to the UN Security Council in February 2003, laying out the ground for invading Iraq by falsely claiming that the country had weapons of mass destruction. But he's celebrated, as you said, he's celebrated as a pathbreaker, as the first black national security advisor, chairman mm-hmm. of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Secretary of State, whose stellar record, as they say, was stained, this is how they phrase it, by his lies about Iraq having WMD. I think this country never fails to amuse me and infuriate me at the same time. Because even when they criticize George W. Bush, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, they do so not not because they admit and acknowledge the destruction of civilian lives in Iraq and elsewhere, but they do so because of the American exceptionalism. He made them, these people made them look bad and perpetrating these blunders and mistakes. And they are better. They are perfect. So they drag them to do so. I am only concerned with the civilians that perished as a consequence of what Colin Powell and his ilk did. And uh, the names of these people who died in Iraq will never reach the pages of newspapers in the United States. So even when they talk about Colin Powell, you don't see a story the day after from a survivor of the horror enabled by Powell and his ilk from Iraq. Since we talk about the United States and its role in Iraq, we should also talk about the role played by other regional powers. The mm-hmm. protesters, the Shreen protesters, made it clear that they were fed up with political leadership that is influenced by outside powers. And one of these outside powers that stands out is Iran. What role does the Iranian regime play in Iraq? How critical is their role in buttressing the current regime in Iraq? Well, they are seen as the puppeteers, uh, and they they have a big say in uh, who does what in the rotten green zone. So many of the politicians ask for Iran's blessings before embarking on any initiative in terms of politics. Of course, Muqtad al-Sadr is a bit critical of them, but it remains powerful in terms of you have so many armed factions in Al-Fatah bloc that won 15 seats in the parliament. And for as much as Iraqi is concerned, the ordinary citizens, they see its role as malicious. 
and many of the chants, in fact, we spoke about the protests of 2019 actually were directed against Iran and its puppets in both local and uh, the federal government. Nabil, the state of healthcare system and response to COVID is epitomizes bigger issues Iraq is facing today. In a piece you wrote for Open Democracy last year, you say in Iraq, as is the case elsewhere in countries facing the multifaceted challenge posed by the pandemic, fragile groups of people are left to fend for themselves as the government kneecaps itself in the race to contain the spread of COVID-19 infection. You had a personal experience and a loss, and you had to navigate the broken healthcare system to help your loved one in the hospital. Tell us about the experience and how it points to the broader problems in the country. Yes, I wrote a lot about the health system in Iraq. I met with people who had to work during the first months when the pandemic was in its apex. They couldn't afford buying masks or And the government response was selective. For example, you see them deploying medics at checkpoints and upscale neighborhoods where the media goes and the diplomats might pass. But in central Baghdad, for example, these uh, medical teams, at least in my multiple almost weekly visits where I found no trace of them and the people I interviewed told me that they have seen nobody And even when restaurants and cafes were ordered shut, a different world was ongoing in forgotten neighborhoods, especially in central Baghdad. But whatever I wrote about COVID-19 and the Iraqi hospitals was nothing compared to what I have seen when my late mother had to visit the hospital, stay for two weeks, and then depart our world in July, a few months ago. In fact, Let me just say that at a time where a couple of incidents took the lives of dozens of patients who were incinerated in a way similar to the victims of Al-Amriya bomb shelter that was bombed by the United States in 91. Having this in mind, on one of my visits to my mother in Iraq, we have these Chinese-made balls that you throw onto a fire to extinguish the fire. When I tried to get this inside the hospital, security forces didn't let me do it. And they took me to someone from the hospital administration. And he uh, looked at it and he said that you'll make people talk now. I told him this will not hurt anyone. I just want to put it next to my mother's bed in case case anything happens. Because there, I didn't see any fire extinguisher inside the hospital. They were reluctant. And in the end, it was, I think, a doctor who was uh, ending his shift and walking out of the hospital saw me uh, speaking with the security members outside. And he told them, let, let him bring it in. It's just a, a fire extinguisher. A few days after I managed to take it inside, a few fire extinguishers were placed in a few corners in the isolation ward. Now, the isolation ward is basically where, uh, say, 10 patients sleep in each room with someone from their families. Because if a patient is sent on his own with an ambulance, let's say, no one would take care of him or her. There are no nurses to come and feed them, for example. The hospitals are short-staffed indeed. But again, many of the visitors actually don't wear masks. No one bothers to tell them 
why aren't you wearing your masks? Or, for example, ask them if they have received a vaccination. And they come and sit and our relatives come and say hello. And I refuse to link this to ignorance, for example, because these people actually suffered a lot. They emerged from a decade of genocidal sanctions battered on their heads to a miserable existence where bombs go off almost every day in their life. And then again, they, they had to survive living under corrupt regimes. In the hospital, for example, I had to bribe nurses to beg nurses to give my mother her medication at the specific time she needed to, to receive it. It was normal that the doses were delayed. And uh, some young doctors did a pretty good job and they were close to us and tried to help. But again, it's the system itself. For example, when my mother was first admitted, the CPAP, this machine that helps COVID patients breathe. For example, doctors in the, in the isolation ward didn't know if there is, for example, a spare machine that she could use. And they told my brother, you either go and buy one from the outside, but we would not guarantee that she would still be alive when you come back or you try and find a machine. And eventually it was through contacts. My cousin secured the machine inside the hospital that wasn't used. And I'm sure it was needed to place it above my mother's head. Now, the emergency ward has its door open to the isolation ward and people come and go, many of them unmasked. When someone dies, their relatives would be next to his or her bed, wailing aloud, which further destroys patients who are in desperate need for anything to lift their morale. You have a few pounds of sewage in the garden, garbage flying here and there. And it was one of the most respected state hospitals. That was basically one of the ideal state hospitals before America and Britain destroyed Iraq. Even the electricity. I remember one day the ACs stopped working. and It was hot. And I could see not only my mother was sweating and telling us how it was hot and that she wanted air and the fan wasn't enough. And of course, these things we had to buy, for example, fan, change the sheets, it's all from us. And then uh, even the doctors felt helpless and hopeless and they didn't, they couldn't do anything actually to make the power come back. And I had to call a senior employee in the Ministry of Health and beg him to try and do something. And I actually told another journalist, a friend, to send this employee a text message telling him that they, he heard complaints inside the specific hospital of people complaining of the absence of electricity and the deterioration in the patient's health. Only then did the power come back. And one thing that also stuck in my mind is that there was an old man thrown in the garden on the lawn. He didn't have his ID. His relatives just brought him to the hospital and left him there to die. And he stayed for a couple of days, actually. There, no one carried him, no one. He was dying. People come and put a bottle of water next to him. Only when one doctor took the responsibility of taking care of him. Only then was, the, was this old man carried inside to be treated. It is miserable. No matter how much you read and study Iraq, it is when you walk into a state hospital that you know the extent of corruption and misery in Iraq. And in fact, it's not just that. I'm, me and my father, a few months ago, went to take the vaccination. Of course, the state urges the people 
incessantly to take the vaccine. So we went to take the vaccine four weeks every Monday, and they tell us that there are no vaccines available. And people cram sometimes 100 and in an area that is not suitable for large number of people to, to queue up amid a pandemic. And you see, Western media tells you about how Iraqis are reluctant to take the vaccine. Were there enough vaccines available? I have so many pharmacists and doctors who are, who are my friends. And then when the ministry allocated doses for them, they took their families along to take the vaccines. So there are so many things that things that you can say about Iraq and, and you still fail to portray a vivid picture that depicts the exact extent of misery in today's Iraq. Nabil Saleh is an independent journalist, writer, and photographer whose writing and photographs have appeared in several publications, including Open Democracy and The New Era. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.